Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. So welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. I'm your host, Trey Borden, and today we have uh, two very special guests. Most of you are aware of the crisis happening right now in Lebanon. Um, Very recently, there was a giant explosion on the port uh, that has caused, you know, untold devastation on a city that was already dealing with a pandemic and, you know, a long history of kind of economic and political upheaval. And so uh, I wanted to invite two guests that could kind of explain what's going on there, how we can help, maybe how we got here and, you know, the immediate impacts of this um, crisis. And so um, we'll get started. So uh, the first guest I'd like to introduce is Natalie Samarjian. So we, uh, almost exactly two years ago, like a few of my other guests, we met on a trip to Israel, which was very life-changing with a bunch of other community builders. And um, I remember one of the aspects of that trip that was really um, kind of troubling. Uh, We had a uh, kind of a four-wheel trip to the Syrian border. And this is a site of a lot of violence, a lot of, kind of upheaval and destruction. And I remember Natalie was in my four or my four wheelies. You know, we were in the same vehicle and she was talking about kind of like that a lot of us, you know, can view this with a, a lot of disconnection because it's not something that we personally experienced. And she talked about how she'd grown up in Beirut and Lebanon and that kind of stuck with me. So when I heard about what had happened, she was the first person I contacted just to see how she was doing. And uh, she's agreed to come on here. So Natalie, welcome. Uh, so glad to have you and just kind of tell a little bit about who you are and your connection to, um, to the country. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Trey, and for um, amplifying Beirut in this moment of great need. Um, So Natalie Samarjian, I am a diasporan Beiruti, uh, ethnically Armenian um, from East Beirut, which has been uh, devastated um, by this explosion. Um, My ancestors uh, immigrated to Beirut um, after the uh, 1915 uh, Armenian genocide. Um, And so Beirut has been home to a a thriving Armenian uh, diaspora uh, for well over a hundred years, particularly in East Beirut in a community um, called Burchamud, um, which is sort of seen as an Armenian Mecca and has been devastated uh, by this explosion, by this disaster. Um, So Beirut is an incredibly special place uh, for me as a Beiruti. Um, I left Beirut in 1989, um, some of the most uh, sort of dire days of the Beirut Civil War. And, uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, remember that um, really uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know horrible, horrible experience. Um, and, um, you know, have been devastated to see Beirut uh, endure pain um, and suffering before and since then. Um, and so um, as, a, as a diasporan uh, who, who lives and loves Beirut, this has been an incredibly painful time. I can only imagine. Um, and I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think like, you know, I know a little about a lot, but you know, this is a region that I, I'm only starting to kind of grapple with the context and the history of. And I think that when things like this happen, it's not only important to kind of talk to people who have a, a, a deep connection to the country, but maybe, you know, are not living there, but people who actually are there right now kind of seeing firsthand what is kind of unfolding. And to give us that perspective is Pollyanna. Uh, thank you so much for being here from Lebanon. Uh, I can't imagine that this is uh, a difficult, an easy time or kind of a convenient time to have something like this. So I really appreciate you taking the time. So uh, please introduce yourself and kind of your connection to Beirut. Sure. Thank you so much again for having us. And thank you, Natalie, for um, suggesting that I join you for this conversation. And Trey, thanks again for choosing to talk about Lebanon in this very very difficult time to say the least. Um, So my name is Poliana, I'm Lebanese. I've lived in Lebanon my entire life. Um, I've traveled traveled back and forth. I um, studied in London for a while, but came back and chose to come back, uh, chose to come back and chose to sort of build my career and give my career a chance um, in the region. Um, I'm a consultant. I do mostly strategy and management consulting, both in Lebanon and the region. Uh, But my choice to be here is uh, not an easy one. 
um, a lot of us, and I'm sure Natalie, you know from friends of yours who continue to live in Beirut, but also those of us who left, it's, we, have a, we have a strong you know, love-hate love relationship with Beirut because we love it and it's given us so much, but it's also destroyed a lot of our hopes, a lot of our ambitions, um, a lot of our aspirations. You know, a lot of us have really put you know, the effort to try and, and build and invest and fight um, in this country. And, and what happened you know, um, with the explosion has, has completely destroyed um, all of what was left of you know, our, our hopes and our dreams for this country. So um, thanks again for having us. And um, I look forward to talking about some of the aftermath uh, and the challenges that we've been facing on the ground and what this means for us. Um, and you know, what, if any, next steps uh, are there for us left to do at this point? Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, obviously during this time, it's a, a time of global upheaval, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that what's interesting about kind of the, you know, COVID-19 and some of the, the outcomes of it is that it's exposing so much of what is already wrong with these systems. You know, I can speak as an American. Uh, it is very difficult to not see all of the inequities and corruption uh, and kind of the intended effects of neglect mm -hmm. that you know, this, this whole period has revealed. So, you know, before we get to the explosion, can you guys mm -hmm. kind of get us, uh, give us a little bit of context of kind of what was going on. Obviously there was the civil war, there was the uprisings in October, October 17. So kind of get us to set the stage for kind of what this explosion kind of compounded. Sure. Sure. Natalie, would you like to do that or shall I go ahead? Yeah, no, why don't you go ahead and start? I think it'll be good okay. to get your perspective first. Sounds good. So um, I, just to, you know, sort of fast, you know, just to give you a, a, a very brief overview of our political and our social context over the last couple of years. So our, our civil war ended in the early 90s. It started in 1975. And right after the civil war, there was what was called the Ta'if Accord, which is basically an agreement that granted amnesty to all criminal warlords that fought in the war uh, and basically returned them to power. Fast forward 30 years later, today, the exact same people continue to be in power. Um, they, are, they created a very tightly knit network of clientelism and um, sectarianism and um, corruption that basically benefits off of people's vulnerabilities and their dependence on the system. And so when we talk about, you know, why do we continue to elect them? Why are they still in power 30 years later? It's because they've designed a system that is built around their power and around people's dependence um, on their services, essentially. And we have to keep in mind that when we talk about the system, I, I speak both about the political elite, but also the government as, a, as an institution, because they are very heavily uh, linked and they are um, essentially what, what we call today, you know, it's, 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 it's the, they're the cancer of, of the government. They're involved in every, you know, office, every institution, every municipality, um, in every ministry. Um, and they're the exact same people that have continued to essentially destroy what's left of the country. Um, and so at the backdrop of the explosion of everything that happened um, on August 4th, there are three main things I would say that have really exasperated um, uh, the impact of the explosion. And the first one, one of the things that you mentioned in the very beginning, Trey, was, you know, Lebanon was going through the worst economic crisis in its history ever. Um, you know, we saw uh, people losing their jobs. There were several reports of suicides. We saw local businesses shutting down. Our currency, our lira rate was through the roof, um, we saw, um, you know, um, um, lack and shortage of electricity, of fuel, of bread, of wheat. Um, there was uh, really deteriorating capacities at all levels um, across the country, not just in Beirut. Um, secondly, what, again, you mentioned the October 17th revolution, uh, which started last year um, and really gave us, it gave hope to the hopeless, I would say, because it was something that created, you know, mass uprisings, mass protests across the country. It was decentralized. There were efforts across, you know, the South, the North, the Bekaa Valley, um, in Beirut. Uh, it was extremely powerful. And it was, again, a protest, a cry, um, as a result of deteriorating political and social uh, conditions in Lebanon. And then finally, I would say, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic, which really, um, you know, it, it took out anything that was left in the country. Uh, the businesses that continued to you know, uh, work and that were able to still stand on their feet after the economic crisis were completely uh, destroyed following the pandemic. Um, it further, you know, it made our, our, it further exasperated, I would say, our healthcare system, our medical capacities. So, I mean, Lebanon was really, really struggling. And 
it was a, we were a walking, I would say, walking, breathing, ticking time bomb, I would say, right before the explosion. And so this is just kind of like a very brief overview of what we were going through. Life was getting very difficult. Beirut was almost, you know, it was unlivable. It was beginning to feel suffocating on all levels, on a person level. I was struggling with the idea of leaving, um, but also wanting to do something in Lebanon. Um, and so all of that, you know, between October of last year and then August of 2020, uh, things got bad really, really quickly, um, leading up to the day of the explosion that, shattered the entire city and wiped out, you know, a huge part of the country. Um, so this is where we're at today. And um, Natalie, did you have anything to add or kind of um, as, a, as someone who is very aware, but kind of like what's been your impression from, you know, from your vantage point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one other piece um, to to add is just a little bit of kind of going a little bit further back in in history to share that you know uh, Lebanon, um, you know, in in the forties was was you know structurally designed uh, to balance Lebanon's sort of mosaic of religions and cultures. And it's oh, it's been a hub that has housed uh, you know diversity of, of, of ethno religious communities um, in a really beautiful mosaic that has since evolved into you know, sectarian trouble. But um, Lebanon has also, I think, it's um, we'd be missing a huge point to not state um, the absorption of refugees during the refugee crises of the the last you know decades and and before that Lebanon currently has about 1.5 million Syrian refugees within a population of 6 million people um, and per capita in the world houses the highest per capita number of refugees and that's in addition to um Palestinian refugees, refugees from other parts of the world, and particularly from West Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East, um, and going as far back as is my family. My family arrived in Beirut as refugees, and um, and so I think it is really, uh, you know, this is a, a, a precarious, depressing, and, and troubling circumstance that Lebanon finds itself in. But I think um, there is is a, a core structure and design that was really beautiful in its creation, um, a democracy um, that was designed to give uh, various ethno-religious groups a voice um, and, and was, was designed to really kind of uh, mobilize a, um, a, a community of folks who um, not only coexist, but really thrive in, in that mosaic of diversity. So that's a, that's a really um, core, um, core part of, of Lebanon's history that I think is worth noting. Yeah, and I think that that makes this all the more tragic. It's like here you have a region that is, you know, full of strife and kind of um, kind of internecine conflict and conflict kind of caused by, you know, external forces. And uh, I think it represented for a lot of people a home and a haven and a maybe kind of a hopeful way of constructing a government and a society. And so, you know, to see, so like there's a lot more at stake than just the Lebanese people. And that's, you know, obviously those are huge stakes, but the fact that so many other cultures and peoples have kind of sought refuge in this place, um, like they're, and they're already so displaced and unstable that, or unstable that for this to fall apart means, you know, it has ripple effects, I'm sure throughout, you know, not just the, the Middle East, but all the way over here. Um, and so I think that that gives some really helpful context on top of the fact that, you know, it's beautiful. You know, I haven't been to Lebanon or Beirut, but like you see the imagery, you see kind of like these very rich kind of cultural products of the of the city and the country. And it's like really a jewel um, that people have valued, you know, for all types of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so to see it kind of descend into this kind of chaotic and depressed instability is is really hard. So I think that I, wa- I just want everyone watching this who's never given a thought to Lebanon to kind of also know that part of its kind of cultural contribution. Um, and so, yeah, so now I guess let's, let's talk about, you know, you said a ticking time bomb. That's a, a pretty unfortunate phrase because that's literally what occurred, you know, just last week. So can you talk about what that day was like? Sure, absolutely. I mean, and I'm going to try not to be emotional. You know, I've been, oh, of course. <laughs> we've been this, this, you know, the, the aftermath of the explosion has been... Um, very unexpected in terms of the mental and psychological states that we've gone through, uh, especially um, as survivors, if, if you like. Um, there's, there's a sense of guilt, there's a sense of fear, there's a sense of anger, 
uh, but there's also very, very, very heavy grief that we're still fighting with. So I'm going to try to just give you an overview of what happened without being too emotional. So forgive me. And, if, and whatever you'd like to share, that's fine. Sure. I mean, no pressure to do sure. anything you're not comfortable No, with. I, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what we do know for sure. And there are not many things that we know for sure. So let's start with the facts. Um, August 4th, around 10 past 6 p.m., um, there was a massive explosion. There was close to 3,000 uh, tons of ammonium nitrate stored uh, by the port of Beirut, uh, by the main country's lifeline, essentially. We import around 85 to 90% of our products. So our entire port you know, was completely destroyed. Um, the first few seconds, I was actually on the phone with Joel, uh, Natalie, our, mine and Natalie's common friend. I was on the phone with a friend who lives in Barcelona and you know, I started screaming on the phone. I, I looked around the house. We thought there was an earthquake. Uh, the entire glass uh, started shaking. My house, the ground under our feet started shaking. We felt there was an earthquake. Um, I live about 20 minutes outside of Beirut at the moment with my family, but I'm usually in Beirut. My office is about 10 minute walk from the port. So we had been working from home because of the lockdown, because of the virus, uh, but I had been home uh, at that point. And within a few seconds, you know, I started screaming on the phone. I run to my family. I realized, thankfully, we were safe. My parents were safe. Um, I think of everyone, you know, I know who's in Beirut at that second, our office, my sister, our friends, everyone who I know within a split second, I start calling people. We don't know what has happened yet. We turn on the news. They say there's been, you know, explosive. It's the first, you know, the first reporting was saying it was close to um, former prime minister's house in downtown. Then they said, no, it's further down. So closer to, to the shore, closer to the port. And within a few minutes, you know, our entire lives were shattered. We didn't realize what was coming. We didn't realize the extent of the damage. And, and frankly, we've lived through wars. I lived through the 2006 war. Um, we've seen bombings. We've seen assassinations. This was nothing like it. Um, mm. And these are the facts. Anyone you speak to, even our parents' generations, would say this was incomparable in terms of the magnitude of the damage, the extent of the damage, how it wiped out an entire city. Um, and, and this is me talking, but we go back to the facts. 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate were stored. Um, what we know for sure is that government officials did know. The port administration did know. They arrived to Beirut in 2013, so we're speaking about six to seven years ago. Um, there were reports and a lot of international media uh, confirmed that you know, judges and the port administration were um, uh, aware of their existence and did absolutely nothing. And I mean, for those of you who know Beirut, Natalie, if you, if you, you, know, if you have a connection to Beirut, you know how small Beirut is, you know how tiny it is. It's a city, I mean, Beirut alone is, 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 is barely nothing. I mean, it's a city that has 1.5 million people. Houses are really, really close to each other. There are businesses, it's a very commercial area. There are hotels, there are hospitals. Um, there are schools, and that was all destroyed in a matter of seconds. And I think this is what we've been struggling with. Um, again, we know that uh, we know that the government knew, and this is something that we've really been struggling with, and really trying to see who to blame and who needs to be held accountable. But at this point, it's not just one person. We know that the entire government knew. We know that even the president knew and did nothing about it. Um, and this is what's been extremely difficult. And this is, I think. The only thing we're left with is, is rage at this point. Um, and on a, on a mental state, I feel, and I, 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 you know, I don't speak on behalf of anyone, but I know from, from friends, from family, from people on the ground, they not only stole, stole our present, our city, but they also stole memories that we had in the city. They stole our future in the city. Um, something that I've been struggling with on a personal level is we're never going to go back to what we had. We're never going to go back to the Beirut that we knew. Um, I, for one, you know, lost friends, lost um, our, our workspace. Uh, we're never going to go back to that. And the worst part is we're not sure there's anything we can do about it. Um, mm. And I think this, this is just to, just to sort of lay down the facts that it wiped out an entire city um, and, no, and they were warned and no one did anything about it. Um, so this is just in terms of the actual uh, explosion. And then a week later, it took them an entire week, the government resigned. Um, which doesn't say much at this point. Uh, the government has re resigned several times in our past. 
frankly, I mean, we've been running the country as, as individuals, as communities, with or without the government. Um, mm. You know, we, we do our own waste collection. There's private generators for electricity. The youth have mobilized efforts on the ground, you know, way better and much more organized than the government ever did anything for us. So frankly, the government resigning for me is, is not indicative of anything. Um, if anything, it's, it's just it's, it's a show uh, that they should have done way back in October of last year. Um, there is no clear responsibility. We don't know specifically who to blame. Um, some, including the former prime minister who just resigned, called for early elections. But many of us feel that, you know, it's, it's, it's not the right move at the moment. Um, it's likely to reproduce the exact same people, bring them back to power. Uh, we don't have an electoral law that represents what people want today on the ground. So things are, are very messy and very painful, um, to say the least. Natalie, please feel free to add anything of, of your experience the last few days. Yeah, I think similarly, um, it's been overwhelming grief and, um, and, 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 you know, uh, wishing that I could be close. I have family in Beirut. I, of course, immediately, as I learned about it, called uh, my family members, um, some of whom do live in Beirut, some who live in East Beirut. Um, and of course it was, you know, just like our, our hearts um, beating out of our chest. Um, and, uh, you know, my uncle and cousin were pushed down an entire flight of stairs because after they saw the initial smoke, were trying to um, vacate um, their building. And so that's when the explosion happened when they were at the head of the stairs and blown away some other injuries. Um, thankfully, my my family is okay, but many families are not. Many families we know have lost loved ones. Um, but, you know, it's the, the sad part about it is uh, is that this is sort of become endemic um, to Beirut um, and to the broader region. And I think we've, you know, it, it was a moment um, that cemented that we've been kind of living in a narrative that this is a, a normal in, in Lebanon, in West Asia, in North Africa, in the Middle East at large, right? That violence, pain, and trauma um, are a normal, a normal that we've adjusted to even in the way that we digest news. I mean, since our sort of, you know, war on terror, if you will, here um, in the US, right? We've seen the destruction of Iraq. We've seen the destruction of Syria, what's currently happening in Yemen, in Egypt, in Lebanon. Um, this is all in one region of the world that has absorbed an overwhelming amount of destruction and, and pain um, and displacement. Um, you know, it has its roots in, in the concept of, of Orientalism um, that Edward Said shared decades ago that unfortunately is only becoming more and more relevant, this idea of, of the East, if you will, encompassing sort of the, the broader region um, of, of being underdeveloped and inferior um, and violent and dangerous and, and the West of being superior and evolved. And um, I think it's a, an incredibly dangerous and destructive narrative. And one, unfortunately, um, that, you know, the Lebanese have, you know, have, have suffered through. Um, and in, in many ways, I think we live in a global, global kind of paradigm and narrative that's really extractive when we talk about these issues, even just discussing um, this incident of you know, and, and talking about the resilience of the Beirutis, right? You know, the Beirutis are an incredibly resilient people. You know, my, my uncle, as he was talking about it, was like laughing with me on the phone. He's like, oh, you know, war, like it was, you know, Natalie, like the civil war, you know, we, we slept in the bomb shelters. We've never felt anything so powerful. But that came from a place of being so numb and desensitized that he felt the need in that moment to sort of joke through this immense pain. But I can tell through that his voice was cracking. I could tell that he was a shell of a person as he was saying that. But I think that that really encapsulates the psyche of the Lebanese people, of the, the people of the region at large who have had to endure, you know, just a, an unimaginable level of, of pain and trauma. And, um, and I don't think want to be considered resilient because when we would use a word like resilient, we're not talking about the underlying circumstances that push a people to become resilient. Nobody really chooses to the circumstances that force them to become resilient. So maybe instead of going there, let's talk about the circumstances that are pushing folks um, to have to live in this in this sort of you know resilience um, and the the really dangerous kind of narratives that live under it, I think is a really important mm -hmm. thing that I hope this moment really highlights. 
Absolutely. And thank you for saying that, Natalie. I mean, I know a lot of local as well as international media is highlighting, you know, the resilience of Lebanese people, how, you know, less than 24 hours later, we saw people on the streets picking up, you know, what was left of the city, trying to help each other. I mean, that's, it's been, it's been heartening, but it's also, I'm very hesitant to use the word resilient, um, as, as you rightly said, uh, Natalie, because I mean, on the one hand, resilience does have a limit. You can't bomb an entire city on purpose and say, oh, we're resilient, let's just rebuild it. I mean, that's just beyond what anyone ever imagined or what anyone ever expected would happen to the city. And also in terms of the actual incident, in terms of the actual disaster, Becky Anderson from, from CNN said something last week that really caught my attention. It was not inevitable. This was not a war. This was not a terrorist attack. This was not an earthquake. This was a calculated decision to leave almost 3,000 tons of explosive um, um, material by the port in a city that hosts Lebanese and non-Lebanese. I mean, this was not inevitable. It was a series, and this is why I use the word, you know, ticking time bomb, because it was, we were living and breathing and going out and studying and working and, and dancing and walking around the city that could have exploded in our faces at any point in the last six or seven years. And this is why I'm, I'm angry at people who continue to say, you know, how resilient we are. It's not like we have an option not to be. It's not like, right. you know, I'm, I'm sure if you've seen any videos or pictures of what has happened the last few days, you know, in a matter of, of, of seven, six, seven, eight days, we saw, you know, the entire rubble was, was cleaned off the streets, young people, elderly, um, you know, people from outside of Beirut coming into the city and, and cleaning and volunteering and donating not because we choose to wake up and be resilient, but because we have no option. I mean, I don't even expect the municipality to go down. Why even give them that credibility that they represent us and that they will do anything when they are the people who allowed um, for this disaster to happen? So we're not resilient by choice. It's because we honestly don't have another option other than to just pick up and, and continue. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing kind of your, you know, first person story and, and Natalie for kind of what you shared as well. I mean, there's just, there's so many responses that I have. I mean, I, I think it's so important to kind of like really hammer home that this was negligence. Like, I, I'm so glad you called out. This is not like something that couldn't have been avoided. You know, this is not something that couldn't have been avoided. This is something that people chose to ignore and hide and sit on. And I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, you talk about COVID and, you know, how you were at home, like, imagine if things had been normal, 6 p.m. on a random day in Beirut in the summer, like, you know, who knows how much worse it's been, but it's just like, when things like that are happening, and they're the result of kind of such intrinsic neglect and kind of incompetence and, and really kind of moral disregard for the people that you're supposed to be protecting and serving, and it's, it's really appalling. And I can only imagine being a citizen there and having already known all of those things. Like, it's not like you didn't know they weren't negligent or that they didn't care and that they were, you know, incredibly corrupt and self, you know, uh, and kind of like all of those things were known by the people. But this is really putting such a tragic and fine point on it. I, I can only imagine how frustrating that is. And then, you know, to talk about resilience, um, yeah, it's like, you know, as a black American, like I, I totally, I, I hear exactly what you're talking about. It's like black people are so resilient or like Latina, Latinx people are so resilient. It's like, yeah, because like, what is the, what's the alternative? We die, you know, we just That's give it. up, you know, we have to take care of one another. We have to be willing to endure unimaginable humiliation and violence and suffering because that's what we have to do, you know, but like, why is that the circumstances? And I think that what's unfortunate about this incident is that for a lot of Americans, this is, why, this is one of the reasons why I thought this was so important is because we're, we're, we're fed images of the Middle East. And like most people don't differentiate that much between Iraq and Iran and Lebanon and Kuwait and Yemen, like it's all just this place, you know? And so I think that, you know, this is a very different situation than that. And I think that it is time for us to start, you know, kind of deconstructing like what is going on in these places. These are human beings. This is not some mass of violent terrorists, you know? I mean, it never was. And I think that that, you know, this, this could be an opportunity to kind of start to really probe into what is happening here. How can we show up in a way that is humane and respectful and kind of responsive to what the people say they want, you know? So I think that kind of like, 
it is good to see that the Lebanese people are kind of taking matters into their own hands. Cause like you said, who else going to do it? Um, but I think that, you know, I do want to speak to an earlier point you said, which is like, what, how, what do you rebuild? Like you bomb a whole city. What are you going to supposed to do? Like rebuild it brick by brick or, you know, start over or return to London? Like kind of what's going, like kind of what are your peers talking about? I mean, there's certain people who have no choice but to remain. And those people will have to rebuild because they don't have any other option. But, you know, kind of how do you keep the people with options committed to that rebuilding or should they be? Sure. I mean, that's becoming harder by the day. Um, I know for a fact that my work, part of our team, you know, quickly the day after decided to relocate um, to the Gulf. I know a lot of my friends um, who have kids who, whose houses were damaged um, and who have no sort of guarantee that this is not going to happen again, that we're going to be able to live in safety, that I can sit at home and not have to worry about my parents, my children, my neighbors, that I can go to work without, you know, the street in front of my, my work, work being bombed or that, you know, the glass is not, the window is not going to fall on my head. We have absolutely no guarantee that something of this sort is going to happen again. So convincing people and, and, and you know, trying to understand why people continue to choose to live here is, is becoming harder by the day. And I, I for one, have an option to, to relocate um, and we're hoping we don't have to take that option as a company and as a family. I'm hoping that I will be able to at least, you know, sit at home, if not go to my office, which doesn't exist anymore at this point. Um, you know, work remotely, donate remotely, try to mobilize remotely because going down to the streets has become dangerous. And it's, you know, with, with the announcement of an emergency state earlier today, the military, the army is all over the city. And the idea of, of them having rule over our lives they can they can you know um um essentially stop public assemblies they can allow you to uh you know or, or not allow you to step out of out of the house that the idea that there is now a safety threat and a security threat uh, from within the country this again was not a terrorist attack this was not another country uh, deciding or targeting lebanon um so it's been it's it's becoming harder and harder to convince myself and others to stay but I will say this, if we leave, then they stay. And the, the fight that we have now is honestly, again, we are, we are full of rage and that's the only thing we have at the moment. And the only thing that's keeping me here is I don't want to keep this country for people who want to destroy it, for people okay. who have decided to destroy it and for others who support that type of destruction or who continue to support their politicians or um, you know, whoever they feel represents them. Um, it's either us or them this time, and it's either going to be a complete, you know, a complete uprising, complete um, a coup, whatever you want to call it, or they will, they are going to take over the country. Um, and so I choose to stay for this reason, and I choose to stay as well because it's it's been it's been you know amazing seeing how quickly and how how efficiently efforts have come together to start rebuilding and start cleaning up. And um, I, for one, have been involved with young movements and student movements and cross-university movements independently, um, you know, since, the, since 2010, 2012 uh, with university. And it's been amazing to see how much people love the city and how much people continue to give back, despite the fact that really it's given us nothing, you know, basic yeah. rights, basic safety, uh, basic amenities, basic services we don't have. So that's all I can say. And I hope that others do feel the same. Um, I know that, you know, Natalie, you said something in the beginning, and I, I think that's beautiful that you as an expat, expat want to be here, want to come back, and us here are trying to leave. Um, and that's sort of the, you know, the push and pull that, that a lot of Lebanese have. Um, I have family abroad who are, you know, you know, crying their hearts out, trying to come back and are unable to. And I have friends and family members here who are doing everything possible to get out. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unlike anything in terms of, again, the magnitude and the extent of the disaster. And I agree, Natalie, that the region is, is, you know, regularly seen as, you know, one block, terrorism, whatever it is. But I feel that, and this is, again, my bias because I'm Lebanese, but I do feel that Lebanon and its context and, and the extent of, of how complicated our political system is, um, how diverse um, our, our sects are, um, how rich of a country, um, of a people we are, I think is very particular. Um, and it's been reduced to a battlefield, I would say. Uh, and there are things internally that 
we have, you know, sort of ruined ourselves with by electing corrupt politicians, including, you know, electricity, fuel, um, you know, running water, all of that is local politics. But there are, there's a geopolitical involvement um, that also needs to say, you know, hands off Lebanon. We, there are over 200 people that have died, over 6,000 injured, close to 300,000 people displaced. You need to let these people live. And I don't see that decision happening anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it you know, um, the, the conversation around rebuilding took me back to a, an early childhood memory in, in Beirut, especially with the amount of glass that we've seen shattered mm. um, in the streets. Uh, you know, during the Civil War, uh, I, I lived in East Beirut. We lived on the the top floor of of. A, uh, a building in East Beirut um, and we regularly didn't have windows and we had trash bags that covered our windows and I distinctly remember developing the awareness that we didn't have windows and they were trash bags um, and asking my grandmother why and she said what's the point of putting up windows if they're only going to be bombed and shattered again right and I think that that is actually a metaphor for the broader kind of psyche of the Lebanese you know most cities max have ever had to rebuild maybe once, twice in a century, three times. You know, Beirut has had to rebuild and rebuild multiple times uh, every, every decade. I think it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's traumatic. Um, it's uh, oppressive. And I can't remember in, in this, you know, I can't imagine um, the lived experience of a, of a Beiruti. This is just, you know, my experience as somebody who emigrated from Beirut and still holds that trauma. I can't imagine the layers that that you, Pollyanna, and and other Beirutis who've, uh, you know, lived their their young and adult lives in Beirut have um, are holding. I think you touched upon something that is, uh, I think is very emotional for a lot of Lebanese, which is the collective trauma of the civil war, um, which I, I thought, and a lot of us thought felt the same way that people in our 20s, our early 30s, um, almost avoided that collective trauma that our parents' generations had. But even our parents and our grandparents now can, can attest that this is worse on all levels, uh, on a hum humanitarian level, um, you know, even coming at a time like this when, when already um, our resources, our infrastructure, our capacities were almost, you know, demolished. Um, I think I was hoping that our generation would be able to escape that collective trauma. And sadly, um, I mean, signs of, of, of PTSD are, you know, with me, starting with me, with friends of mine, I, we joke about it, uh, um, like you said, Natalie, but it's, it's I mean, there's not much left. Uh, there's, I'm very angry. And, and to be honest, being angry is, is a good thing. I'm hoping to stay angry because that gets me moving, that gets, gets me organizing. Um, but it's the grief that is crippling, um, I would say. And it's the grief, again, like I said, of you know, not having a normal to go back to. What do we rebuild? Where do we start? I mean, there's not enough resources to re rebuild the city. And uh, again, I keep thinking about, you know, this might happen again. There might be more explosives. There might be another bomb. Um, they're not going away and, and seeing the exact same politicians, you know, sit in their suits as warlords, as criminals, you know, sit and argue, oh, let's have early elections or, oh, let's bring back a former prime minister who also couldn't, you know, manage waste when he was in, in, in power um, is, is destructive. And it's destructive to our morale. It's destructive to any, you know, glimmer of hope that we have left for the country. Um, right. So that's and why I'm, I'm I'm hoping to stay angry. Well, it doesn't seem like that will be hard, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> exactly. there's a lot to be angry about. And what's really frustrating, right. and I, you know, again, this is from my vantage point of having never been, um, but like the struggles are so cyclical, you know, like mm -hmm. even here we're seeing like the fact that we're protesting police violence. You know, my dad is 76 years old, and he's like, I grew up with this, you know, and like mm -hmm. his parents and like, it really does make you question like, what, like, do I continue to put faith in the system that only has these results through generations and generations? It has maybe different forms, but the root causes remain and it really does make you, but the other, the other thing is like, you know, there's nowhere to run. 
I mean, I guess there are places to run that are not Lebanon, but I mean, you get the sense that everywhere is kind of dealing with these, like, you know, some version of these really oppressive, corrupt, and kind of inhumane struggles. And so, you know, something I've been dealing with as a Black American is like, the devil you know, you know? So like, at least I know what this place is like and I have context for this place. And if anyone's gonna help change it, like finally change it, uh, it's people like me. And I, I, I imagine that's true for people like you, Pollyanna, and you know, to extend you, Natalie, like who kind of still maintains a deep connection. Cause also people like Natalie, um, who are not kind of worried about day-to-day survival and rubble can actually be directing really needed resources um, mm. to rebuild. Cause I think that you're right. Like there aren't enough, re- there weren't enough resources damn near to survive before this explosion. For sure. There are not enough to rebuild it, at least in the way that would make it a viable place for everyone to live and thrive. And so mm. a lot of that's going to come from, you know, the diaspora of Lebanese people around the world, but really it's going to take a lot of people who have no connection to the country who just see something good that could happen. And like the good thing about rebuilding is like it can replace, you know, you're not putting like a third floor on like one and two that are super corrupt. You're just like starting with new buildings. And so I guess hopefully there is some chance to really start something different from the ground up. And it it, it would be exciting, I guess, in some, you know, drastic way to be part of that. So I wanted to at least give a few minutes to talk about kind of like what the rebuilding effort looks like, how we can show up. I think a lot of people are concerned because corruption led to this, you know, explosion, funneling a bunch of money into the government doesn't sound like a very viable option to kind of rebuild in the way that you need. So I think a lot of people want to hear about, you know, how do we present resources? Is it our, whose place is it to kind of show up and try to help. Um, I'll let you guys kind of speak to like, what do you think moving in the short term? And then maybe lastly, we can talk about kind of the long term, what needs to happen. Sure. Um, I'm happy to start. Yeah, the diaspora perspective, because I think, you know, my perspective is very much that the the people of Lebanon define what their needs are. And as a diasporan community, we just mobilize to provide those resources. We don't live there. We don't dictate what that uh, the, the new version of Lebanon looks like at all. But we must stand ready to support our brothers and sisters in Lebanon to rebuild um, a community that has welcomed refugees, including my own ancestors, allowed us to build thriving communities. Lebanon, uh, Beirut holds the only Armenian university outside of Armenia. I mean, that really, you know, our own community leader, Hago Pakradunyan, has called it a second Armenia. That really speaks to um, how open Lebanon has been, how inviting to those who have endured trauma and pain and who have needed refuge. And right now, Lebanon itself needs refuge. I think all of us diasporan Lebanese need to to really listen to to Pollyanna, to the leaders, um, to the organizers of these movements that are overwhelmingly youth-led and so inspiring. I think one of the most beautiful documents I saw during our own racial justice movement here in the U.S. uh, was a guide from the Lebanese um, to uh, their Black American sisters and brothers on some tips on how to protest because they had just gone through their own protest. and so, you know, to, to me, I think we we step back, um, we listen to what the Lebanese, uh, you know, mobilizers on the ground, um, you know, need, and then we stand to deliver. But I think there's a huge responsibility that we have in our own diasporan communities. And, you know, one thing that um, is is very apparent in the U.S. Um, is a huge lack of representation. Representation matters. Yet the U.S. Census does not have a category for people from West Asia. Middle East and North Africa. Without proper counting of folks who are members of this community, we're engaging in both erasure um, and really living uh, anti-democracy values, right? Without proper recognition, we can't give proper representation um, that impacts our foreign policy and our domestic policy in the way um, that folks who hold these identities are, are portrayed, perceived, the dangerous narratives um, about the region that persist. Um, I also think we all have 
a responsibility to educate ourselves. We cannot be members of a global community, engage in a global economy without having a, an understanding of global pain, um, the role that we play, that our countries play in perpetrating that pain, um, and doing our part to inform policy um, that is sound, um, that has a human rights focus, um, and, um, and that is not extractive. And so I think those are really important pieces of responsibility that we hold um, and that we can mobilize around. Um, but besides that, I think we step back and really allow um, this really, you know, powerful, brilliant, uh, sort of multi-religious, multi-ethnic group of uh, Lebanese um, to share what their needs are from us as a global community. Absolutely. And I think just to pick up where you left off, Natalie, I think all efforts, absolutely all efforts have been citizen-led. There's been a complete absence, again, and I repeat, complete absence of any government, um, municipal, formal authority on the ground. If anything, they made it worse. You know, 48 hours after the explosion, we were protesting um, on, the, on the streets, in the streets of Beirut, and, and there was tear gas, and, and there were violence, and there was brutality um, by, by the police. And so all and any relief effort that you see on the media, I want to highlight that it has been very much citizen-led and, and very much youth-led as well. Um, so in terms of the immediate and the, the immediate relief efforts, it's been, again, youth-led and, and civil society-led, which both sort of groups of, of people, of, of organizers, have been at the forefront of both social and political change for years. Um, we see independent uh, student groups, youth groups, uh, you know, continuously at the forefront of every juncture, every political juncture in recent history. And this was, uh, this was uh, not any different. So in terms of immediate efforts, of course, you know, we had to start picking up the rubble. Uh, there were houses that have been completely demolished and there were houses that needed picking up. And um, we did both uh, groups and, and, and organizers on the group uh, on, on the streets did both. Uh, there were a lot of organizations, hundreds, if not more organizations, um, NGOs, uh, both local and international supporting. And it's been amazing to see, you know, how quickly and how, how um, efficiently um, they organized to, to start picking up the pieces. But this was just the first step. This was just in terms of immediate relief. So, you know, we still have people that are, are missing. We still have people that are under the rubble in the port of Beirut. So there needs to be, you know, some sort of, of, of bigger effort. And I, and I see, and I want to highlight three main challenges, if you will, um, that we've noticed over the past few days uh, while being on the ground, while supporting these efforts. The first one is the lack of data. So we don't understand the extent of the damage. We don't know how many houses were damaged. There is no formal consensus uh, that really, uh, you know, or statistics or any type of formal analysis that shows, you know, what the houses were like, how many people were living there, how many elderly do we have, uh, where, where are refugees living? Are there people who are disabled who need to be physically carried out of their homes? Um, you know, what's the structural geological damage to the city? There is no data. And this is why a lot of efforts um, are, are really working on, on extracting data from people. So let the people tell us what they need. Um, and this is what we've been working on. And secondly, there's been, and this is not really a challenge as much as, you know, just something that we have to, you know, try and, and, and figure out together is um, there is a lack of coordination. So we see many people doing the same thing, uh, which is not bad because we, you need you know, hundreds and thousands of people to you know, mobilize and organize and, and um, you know, work hand in hand. But there's been some efforts that have been duplicated, a lot of people doing the same things, um, some areas you know, gaining more attention than others, some neighborhoods being, you know, I know that uh, Natalie, you mentioned Burj Hamoud, I know that Burj Hamoud and a closer area called Daura were also badly damaged, perhaps not as much as the main Jemeza and Manam Khayal streets, but also equally um, you know, um, uh, it require equal attention. So in terms of coordination, and I think this is, again, just something that we have to start working together because a lot of us didn't, yeah, I mean, a lot of people came from outside Beirut. Um, I, I'm sure some people were, are not even residents or, or, you know, don't even live in Beirut. So coming together and coordinating is just something that we're going to have to, um, to, to learn, basically. And the last challenge I would say, and this is massive, and I know for a fact that a lot of organizations who have accounts, uh, bank accounts outside of Lebanon um, and have collected donations to transfer to Lebanon have, have uh, faced this challenge is bank restrictions and financial restrictions on banks and capital controls as a result of the economic crisis that we had been going through. Um, so there's a cap 
on how much you can actually bring in fresh money to Lebanon. Uh, people cannot withdraw their money. Um, a lot of organizations are having trouble withdrawing donations, even with everything that's happening. We don't see any sort of flexibility or, or assistance from the banking system or the banking sector. And this has really been a hurdle. Um, you have to have what is called a fresh money account or an offshore account uh, that basically only receives money from abroad so that you are allowed to withdraw cash dollars. Um, and that's been, a, that's been a struggle because there are limits on those accounts too. So a lot of people are still, you know, a lot of my friends abroad in the US, in the UK, in Europe have, you know, have, have collected donations but are unsure how to spend it or where to send it to. Um, and this is one of the things that I'm, I feel is, is our responsibility also to help direct these uh, donations to make sure that none of it goes to the government. Absolutely not a single dollar goes to governmental institutions, uh, that, they, that it is all directed to people and local efforts. Um, and if possible, even individual households and individual hospitals and families. And this is what we've been trying to do, um, you know, trying to target and, and select and see where, you know, the greatest effort is needed in terms of financial resources, medical supplies, equipment for rebuilding. So this is a, this is, this has been a priority. Uh, but one of the other things I would like to say maybe more mid to long term is also we want to make sure that this support and attention is sustainable. Um, and we will continue to need donations and money a week from now, a month from now, six months from now. Uh, we're not going to rebuild the country. And, you know, um, we have, I think, the latest numbers said $300 million, which has been amazing. But, you know, estimates uh, say it, it's going to need closer to $5 billion to rebuild the country. Um, and that's going to come from governmental, but also non-governmental and individual uh, donors abroad outside of Lebanon. So we need the effort and we need the, do the donations and we need the support to be sustainable because we will need all of this in a month's time in a you know a year's time even um so i hope that this gives you an idea of where we're at today on the ground and how important it is also for lebanese abroad like natalie you know like my sister who lives in the gulf like friends who live in the uk in europe in the us and in south america how important um their support has been uh, not only financially, but also, you know, on, on, a, on a moral scale, we, we needed to speak to people who, you know, said, you can do this, you know, try to get some sleep and then you can do this. Um, and it's been incredibly helpful. So I, I, I want to hear, say thank you, Natalie, and everyone like Natalie, who thought of Lebanon, prayed for Lebanon, organized, and um, even sharing content on social media has been you know, massive. We've seen, I've, you know, Madonna shared something on her Instagram. People who had never been to the region um, probably don't know where Lebanon is on the map um, have really, you know, made, made it a point to continue sharing content related to the region. And I think this has really helped amplify um, how bad the situation is and how dire it is and how much we need international support. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I will, Dan, do you have something to say? I just wanted to also add, I think this is a real moment, really, you know, globally. So I think this is very, very true also in the U.S., but um, internationally uh, and, and in Beirut as well for us to really support civil society, this sort of third sector, mm -hmm. um, especially when there's so much government mistrust um, for us really to support the NGOs and the folks on the ground uh, who are you know, taking in and listening to the needs of the people, to the most vulnerable, um, to the most unheard um, and designing um, systems of support for them. I think um, this is really a, a moment for investment in civil society globally um, and that is also also true in um, in Lebanon for sure Absolutely. and I also think that you know for people who think that this will just however it works out it's just gonna impact you guys I mean you want to talk about a place that is the hate you know we're a third of the population are refugee if this state fails and you know those people spread out i mean like if you're in europe i would be concerned about you know how we should be supporting places that have been like a sustainable refuge where there is no you know rampant violence where there is kind of interracial inter-religious harmony we say we want this right like we say this is impossible in this region and yet we've achieved it at least in some version and we're just going to let it fall apart and think that it's not going to have any impact on the west um 
I mean, I don't think that should be the driving motivation to help, but it should be like a, a reason to kind of really put resources behind making sure that this place is able to be rebuilt. You know, I'm not a geopolitical scientist, but I, I even I can understand that it's really important to maintain a state like Lebanon, especially given what's going on elsewhere and the types of reactions we've had to. Sorry, or you know, <laughs> electricity. Uh, no worries. Hey, it's getting real as hell. It's good. This yeah. is what's going on. <laughs> You know, exactly um, so anyway, what we live in. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, here's the proof, like it was if we needed it. So I think that, yes, I think that this, you know, I would, I would, you know, continue to keep us informed about um, kind of what we can do to send resources. Um, I, I certainly, you know, we will post when we post this some things that I think specifically people can get involved with. But this is, like you said, a struggle that is going to be ongoing, you know. Mm-hmm. There's so many places that are going through like this complete um, reimagining and literal rebuilding of like what could be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's important to really connect the dots that like all of these struggles are connected. You know, what's happening in Lebanon and happening in Haiti and happening in DRC and happening in Baltimore, you know, in Detroit. It's like all these things are very connected. And I think that you know, and I love that you brought up, Natalie, about the Lebanese kind of protest handbook and how that's being used by BLM. It's like, it's the same shit. You know, it's the same tactics and the same responses and the same kind of resource flows and the same kind of cooperation that needs to be really global so that all of us can kind of change. Because it's not like one changes and they all stay the same. It's like they all have to be a part of that same kind of movement to create communities and countries and cities that actually support and care about the people that live in them. Cause if they don't, then like, you know, we're all going to be failed soon. And so if there's any last remarks that you wanted um, to, to say, I just wanted to also reiterate how much I appreciate you kind of being on here. I mean, you're doing this through blackouts, you know, like this is really, it's incredible to see. And so I I'm so appreciative. It's been so eye opening and um, really informative and emotional to kind of hear about all of this. So thank you, Pollyanna and, and Natalie, you know, for organizing this and for kind of being such a, a model diasporan Lebanese, you know, like we need a million Natalie's, you know, and so hopefully there are that many. Well, I just more. <laughs> I just want to say to to my Lebanese brothers and sisters, we love you. We see you. We're going to continue um, supporting you and holding your rage. This is too much for any one people to endure. So, absolutely. Right. Thank you for saying that, Natalie. And I think I again, I want to say thank you to uh, my friends, my colleagues, my family on the streets, everyone who you know, took 30 minutes of, of their day to, to, you know, go down to the streets with a broom and pick up some glass and also people abroad who have donated money, people who have used their social media platforms. Um, what you said, Trey, about this, is, this not being only a Lebanon issue is so, so important. I mean, we've become a danger to the world. I mean, the explosion was felt by people in Cyprus and Jordan. There are refugees, there are migrant workers who have died. Um, it's not just that the Lebanese are suffering, it's become, it's, 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 this is a criminal government that deserves to be treated as such. And we want international pressure to shame them, to topple the system. Um, we see throughout history, I mean, regimes have fallen for so much less, I would say, than what we are going through. Um, we've seen systems, you know, completely, you know, change and being, you know, replaced over time for, for much less than what we have endured. And again, this is not just um, as a Beiruti, not just as a Lebanese, but also anyone who's been a resident of, of our beautiful city. So again, thank you for having us. And thank you, Natalie. Um, and thank you, Trey, for choosing to use your platform to talk about Lebanon. And I hope that we do continue to talk about it, uh, to make it a, a topic of discussion and of argument. Um, and I hope that we continue to be angry, um, both those of us here on the ground, but also abroad. There's a lot to be angry about, and I think this is what's keeping us going. Amen. And, I, you know, I certainly know that. And I think that it's really the, the, the challenge and the call is to how do you channel that into something that's productive? Because it does, you know, we're doing this project now where it's like you just want to burn everything to the ground. And mm. that does feel good in the moment. But then you're living in soot. You know, we actually need to be channeling that into organizing and 
you know, cooperating and to in accountability. And so I hope that, you know, you and, you know, the people kind of on the ground in Lebanon, you know, don't let that consume you, but let it fuel your kind of passion and demanding for change. Um, and so, you know, cause that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do here. You know, I want to burn this shit to the ground too, but right. then I got to live here. <laughs> so I think that, you know, Absolutely. I'm more than, I've been really, I'm so thankful that you guys were able to do this. Um, you know, I hope to kind of check it back in with you and, you know, three months, six months, a year. I hope I can, you know, eventually see you in person. I mean, this whole thing has obscured the fact that we're still living in a global pandemic. So please be safe. I mean, Corona didn't go away cause the explosion. You know, and so I hope that like that hasn't exacerbated your guys' um, vulnerability to that virus. And, you know, my hearts are with you and I hope that um, and I'm sure that this is an opportunity to kind of understand what it takes to to help in a genuine and kind of sustainable way. And so I hope that this can be an example where that's done. So absolutely. Absolutely. And it's great to see, you know, people wanting change and people fighting for change across the world. And it's I think with the coronavirus, if, if anything, one of the good things that came out of this is we all feel so much more connected. Um, mm-hmm. Even with the Black Lives Matter movement, we, we feel connected and, and we want to be connected and we need to be uh, to be able to, to you know, see any type of change. So uh, please do stay in touch and do stay safe. Um, I'm not sure I can promise you that, but I will do my best. Um, and yeah, I mean, I hope to uh, stay in touch and hopefully We'll have better news and we'll connect on, uh, you know, a more positive note uh, sometime in the future. And thank Absolutely. you Anna, for making time and sharing your lived experience while you're there and through such a painful time. Thank you. And Trey, thank, thank you for you. amplifying Beirut and using this beautiful platform. Well, thank you very much. I mean, if it's not good for this, then what's it good for? So, um, this has been a great episode. We will definitely follow up with more information and thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.